from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. I am reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. It can be found in your pew Bible on page 44. Listen to God's word to you and to me. When they were approaching Jerusalem, Abephage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Just say this. The Lord needs it, and will send it back here immediately. They went away and found a colt tied near a door outside in the street. As they were untying it, some of the bystanders said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? They told them what Jesus had said, and they allowed them to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut in the fields. Then those who went ahead and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Before we move to our second text, I just want to recognize we not only had our children with us, we also have our confirmation class in good Presbyterian form. They're sitting in the very back pews. But uh, confirmation class, could you just stand real quick, confirmation class? All right. And I wanted you to stand, just hold there for a second. Um, They are in the process, beginning today, of preparing their statements of faith. Uh, And they will will go in front of the session um, in about a week and then be presented to the congregation on April the 24th uh, at this service. And so we're praying for you. We love you. And why don't we show them our support and thanksgiving for them being here today. Great. Okay, our second text is from the Gospel of Mark, the 15th chapter. And even though it says uh, we're stopping at verse 38, we're going to have a bonus verse This morning, we're going to go to verse 39. Uh, So listen to God's word to you and to me. It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified Jesus. The inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two bandits, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by derided him, shaking their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests, along with the scribes, were also mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. 
Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross now so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also taunted him. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. At three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Aloy, Aloy, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they said, listen, he's calling for Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a stick and, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Then Jesus gave a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was God's son. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, break open your word afresh to us this day so that we would be changed, that we would be different people. Even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ, it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Uh, There's a house not too far from here uh, whose occupants have yard decorations marking every single one of the holidays throughout the calendar year. Uh, During Easter... They will prominently display bunnies and eggs and springtime accoutrement. Throughout the month of July, to celebrate Independence Day, they'll put up a hundred or so flags of various shapes and sizes. By late September, early October, it's time for the Halloween decorations, complete with skeletons, an inflatable cauldron right out of Macbeth, uh, faux tombstones. They, They even park a hearse on their front lawn. The first week of November, the inflatable cauldron comes down and an inflatable turkey appears in preparation for Thanksgiving. That will soon be replaced in December by the inflatable Santa Claus and and reindeer and the snowmen and blinking Christmas lights to a regular old winter wonderland. Finally, in February, the hearts and the cupids and, and the red lights that blink go up for Valentine's Day. So just a couple of weeks ago, I was driving past this house, and something caught my attention. Now, usually at this time of year, they're in between decorations. Post-Valentine's Day and, and, and pre-Easter is, is sort of their downtime for their grass to grow again and their, their yard to have a little bit of a break. It's usually dormant. It's very quiet. There's no decorations out, except this year. This year, uh, there was something different. On the corner of the property, you'll now find an eight-foot-high cross. You'll find an eight-foot-high cross, and across the horizontal beam is a purple linen that sort of weaves across it. Of course, purple, right, is the color of Lent, and to have it adorn the cross would make someone think, as they drive by or walk by, would make them think that surely a pious person lives in this house. Surely someone of of faith that would create this cross in this purple linen, they at least know something about Lent. They at least know something about this season. As I drove past, however, 
the cross now out of sight, I leaned in to my worst self. I became cynical. Honestly, I did. Instead of thinking more highly of the home's occupants with this simple demonstration of piety, or at least trying to read it that way, I actually started to question their sincerity. I started to question their sincerity. Was this a genuine gesture of faith? Or was it just one more decoration in a series of decorations, not one more important than the other? For the occupants, was the cross any different than the inflatable cauldron or the inflatable turkey or the inflatable Santa Claus? Despite its religious import, despite its meaning, its symbolism, I wondered, I wondered in that moment in my cynical self, was this just another decorative piece? Void of any genuineness or authenticity. Just something that they put up to mark the time. Now, Palm Sunday, for some of us, is, is one of those days in the Christian calendar, in the Christian year, in the Christian life, when it is very natural to wonder about people's sincerity. I'm thinking now, especially of the crowds that gathered that day, in the text that Frank read for us this morning, when the crowds uh, hailed Jesus as king, shouted at him these praises. They laid down their cloaks on the road. They, they waved palm branches. They sang, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And in a subtle detail, Mark tells us that the crowds went both ahead of him and behind him. And in your mind's eye, I want you to imagine Jesus coming through the gates of the city and he's surrounded, he's encircled by people who are praising him. That's the image. They're shouting praises. And this circle continues to move, this parade continues to move into the holy city. But soon enough, for those who know the story, the praises will begin to die down. Soon enough, Jesus will be handed over to the authorities. Soon enough, he'll be tortured. Soon enough, he'll be crucified on a Roman cross. When that happened, we know what the crowds did, don't we? Those of us who know the story, some of that crowd joined another crowd who was screaming for the release of Barabbas, an insurrectionist that Rome was holding in prison, screaming for his release. And instead of holding Barabbas, they should hold Jesus. Others, as part of that original Palm Sunday crowd, uh, went and fled. They, they went into hiding. They went back to their homes. And, and we might wonder when we evaluate, maybe if we're leaning into that more cynical self, were their shouts of Hosanna even sincere? You know, when Jesus came into this city, were they even sincere? Did they believe that this Jesus came in the name of the Lord? Or were they like front runners, right? Were they front runners? This Jesus has got something going here. Let's, let's get around him. Let's encircle him. Uh, some people call it burging, right? Basking in reflective glory, right? Let's get near to him. And then when things go sideways, when things go sideways, they scram. Friday, they see him hang on a cross, those who are left. The rest only hearing what took place on the hill called the skull. 
having conversations with themselves. We must have been mistaken about this guy. We, we had him all wrong. As we come to this final installment in our uh, Lenten sermon series called Characters at the Cross, our attention now shifts to this centurion that we meet in the pages of Mark's gospel, the 15th chapter. And before I continue, it's important to note that most likely this particular centurion was in charge of all the men, all those Roman soldiers who carried out Jesus' crucifixion. It is quite possible that this centurion was the leader of this cohort of military men. And so as we turn our attention to him, we home in on his words from Mark 15, 39. And as we do, I think we're prompted once again to wonder about sincerity, to wonder about authenticity. It says, now when the centurion who stood facing Jesus saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said something. Now for some of us, we've heard sermons or we've read scripture and we've read it to ourselves or we've read it out loud or we've read a scholar's writing on this, that that what we hear when we read this is we hear truly, this man was God's son. We hear a confession, right? We hear a profession of, of faith. We hear authenticity. You wouldn't be alone if that's how you read this text. You wouldn't be alone with those who think that, that this one is, is the one who is making a, a confession of, of Jesus' true identity. And the centurion then becomes a, sort of an archetype to what's called the, the Gentile mission, right? The gospel is not just... For those in the house, the gospel is for those far and wide. And then we have this non-Jew, really the first person in the entire gospel of Mark, who confesses Jesus to be the Son of God. The only other times Jesus is confessed to be the Son of God or, or professed to be the Son of God, God is saying it at Jesus' baptism and at the transfiguration. This is the first time a human in the story is saying that this is the Son of God. Now, if you want to read the text that way, by all means, read it. If you want to hold some sort of optimism and some sort of space for, for a conversion like this one, please hold that space. But I suspect that there's some of us who are going to take advantage of the room that this text gives us to see and read this text not as something sincere, but as something sarcastic. I saw a t-shirt not too long ago that read, my sarcasm and my sincerity sound surprisingly similar. And so we have to ask, was the centurion sincere or was he being sarcastic? Was he sincere or was he being sarcastic? So much of how we read sincerity and how we read sarcasm is in context, right? right? Like, for example, when you were driving here this morning, and somebody cut you off on Peachtree Street. Remember when that happened? And you rolled down your window, and you came to them at the light, and you said, well, aren't you special? <laughs> or you spill milk on the table, and your older sibling says, hey, good job, buddy. Or your spouse comes home to find that the house, this never happens in our house, but your spouse comes home to find that the house you said you would clean is still a mess And you offer a protest, but I emptied the dishwasher. And they say, big deal. 
After your friend forgets to text you on your birthday and then three days later remembers and sends you a text that says, happy belated birthday, I love you, and you respond back, yeah, right. Right, in all these examples, in all of them, the words themselves out of context could be read as sincere. Good job, pal. Good job, buddy. All of these phrases could be, be read as sincere, but in context, we know right away Right? We intuit this through language and learning of language and interaction that, that, that I was being sarcastic in every single one of these instances. And so to get to the question as to whether or not the centurion is sincere, we have to look at the context. We have to look at the context in which he speaks these words. And, and as we do, I think what we discover is a reasonable case to think that these words truly, <laughs> this is the Son of God, that they should be read sarcastically. First off, right, every Roman soldier, right, every soldier was required to take an oath of unwavering loyalty to the emperor. The emperor was sovereign. In fact, the, the, the loyalty oath that they had to take was to say that the emperor was a son of God, was a son of God. So if a soldier were to break that oath, not only would they lose their post, they would lose their life. They would lose their life. It was non-negotiable. If the confession of the centurion was actually sincere, he would have been brought up on charges of treason and most likely would have ended up in the same place Jesus was, hanging on a cross. Now, it is a matter of history. I know this to be true, and you do too, that people have made confessions of Christ even in the face of death, right? We know those stories. Even in the scriptures, we know about uh, Stephen who was proclaiming the gospel and he was stoned for that proclamation. We know about Peter who was uh, crucified upside down because of his advocacy of the gospel and of Jesus Christ. But is it reasonable to think within the context, is it reasonable to think that this one centurion, this one centurion who, by the way, is the leader of all the soldiers who are crucifying Jesus, that this one centurion would confess in a sincere way. That he would say, yes, this really is the, the son of God. After all, these soldiers were brutal and vicious under his command. Under his command, right? They, they mocked and slandered Jesus under his command. They treated him as anything but human. Why would the centurion change his mind in this single instance? It seems more reasonable to me that this centurion offers his words as sarcasm, right? Truly, this is God's son. Look at him. And why not? Why wouldn't we assume that, right? Why wouldn't Mark Centurion summarize all the mockery, all the disdain in one more sarcastic sentence? Perhaps truly this is God's son is not a closing statement. Perhaps it's a parting shot. Perhaps it's a parting shot. Don't forget, only you and I, the readers, only we know that the temple curtain has been torn in two. Only we know that. The only thing the centurion knows is bad weather came. Darkness filled the land. And Jesus breathed his last breath. And it's at that moment, Mark tells us, when he saw how Jesus died, it was at that moment that he declared, truly, this is God's son. The parting shot of the centurion signals to the reader that everyone, everyone privy 
to the last week of Christ's life, from Palm Sunday, from that crowd that gathered that day, to the disciples who fled, to the soldiers that crucified Jesus, every single one of the characters appears to either be in a state of hopelessness or a state of cynicism. Every single one of them. And Mark, I think, invites us to see ourselves in the crowd that went silent. I think Mark is inviting us to see ourselves in the disciples that fled, to see ourselves in the sandals of a sarcastic soldier. And and friends, let's be honest, it's not hard to see ourselves in those places. As easy as it was for me driving in my neighborhood and seeing this house to move to a cynical place, how easy is it for us to look at the world, to look at the events of our lives with a cynical disposition or a hopelessness that nothing can ever change. We know what it's like for our praises, right, to ring out on Sunday morning. It's so good to see the church full, to ring out on Sunday morning, to wave palm branches, and then let them go silent Monday through Saturday. We know what it's like to flee from the presence of God for the safety of our own autonomy or into that which numbs us from having to deal with the reality that we have to receive. We know what it's like, right, to sometimes possess this cynical or or sarcastic disposition to the events of our lives, to our faith, to the traditions of our faith, even to God. And so in this one line, in this one line, the centurion, I think, offers a summary statement of where everybody's at in the shadow of the cross, where everybody arrives to. This, This place where Jesus breathes his last breath is a place of hopelessness, and it's a place of cynicism. And so with that in mind, I want to invite you to think upon this, this one thought. If you were to take your Bible and you, you, you go to the beginning of Mark's gospel and, and open it up to 1, 1, chapter 1, verse 1. Mark begins the gospel with a declaration of what the readers can expect within, the, when it, within its pages, rather. And Mark starts in this way. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ the Son of God. That's how he begins. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And now 14 chapters later, a Roman centurion mocks that very declaration with cynicism and sarcasm. Because what he sees is not good news. What he sees is not good news. What he sees is another would-be Messiah coming to his inevitable end in a crucifixion on a hill called the skull. And I think, friends, I think that's exactly where Mark wants us to be. I think that's where he wants us to be as we journey on in this holy week. I think he wants us to ponder, how can this actually be good news? I'm telling you a story about good news, and yet we've come to 1539, and there's no good news to be found. How can this story be good news? How can this Jesus of Nazareth be the son of God if he dies a criminal's death? These are the questions we take with us on our journey into Holy Week. Holy Week's a time to come face to face, I think, with our propensity of of letting our praises go silent, with our propensity to flee from God's presence, with our propensity to read our faith and the world with deep cynicism. And so we have to ask the question in this Holy Week, where are your praises going silent? Where, where, where are you fleeing or hiding from God? 
And, and where are you just plain cynical about life or about your faith? Holy Week's a time to sit and acknowledge those realities. And that's where Mark leaves us today as we enter into this season. We don't do this without hope, though. Even amidst our cynicism and even in our hopelessness, there's space for us to show up in hope, in hope that God may do something new, that God may take this cross and redeem it. And if God can do that, friends, God can do anything. That God can take what's broken in our lives and make it whole. That God can take what's old and make it new. We come as cynical people. We come as those who know how to flee from God's presence. We come as those who know how to silent our praises. May we meet the God who can change everything and even us in this very holy week. We pray it's so in Christ's name. Amen.